Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's podcast was recorded on February 13th at approximately 2pm GMT. As always, if you want to find out more about uh, our podcast series or anything we do here at Turk, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C and follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and tweet at us with the hashtag Talking Terror. So it's my great pleasure to welcome onto today's pod my guest, Daniela Pissoyu. Daniela completed her PhD study at the University of St. Andrews School of International Relations and the CSTPV, the Centre for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence, on the topic of Islamist radicalization processes in Germany, France and Austria, and acted as tutor within the Certificate in Terrorism Studies programme there. Between 2005 and 2006, she was a Fulbright Junior Scholar at the University of Cincinnati, where she also carried out a research project on the integration and marginalisation of Muslim minorities in several European countries, having been awarded a Graduate Enrichment Award uh, from the Charles Phelps Taft Research Centre. Before that, she obtained a Diploma and Master's degree uh, from the Diplomatic Academy and University of Vienna in the areas of EU studies and international relations. She also specialised in legal aspects of human and civil rights at the University of Geneva and the Babes uh, Bollier University in Romania. So, Danny, uh, thanks for being today's guest on the pod. And uh, as always with all the guests, how did you um, get involved in this area of research to begin with? Hi, John. F- first of all, thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, it's a very, it, it's a huge honor uh, to be among the people that you've already interviewed, you know, like all big names of terrorism research. Well, you're a big name as well, though. So. Well. <laughs> um so, so anyway, so um, coming back to your question, I think uh, my story is quite similar to some of the others that, that I heard also on the podcast, uh, which is, you know, chance played a, a huge role. You know, I didn't, I didn't um, plan um, to, to have a career in this field. I actually wanted to uh, be a diplomat. Um, okay. So that's why uh, I came to Vienna to, um, you know, to get more insight into, into um, you know, diplomacy and, and have more skills in that direction and, and so forth. And, um, but what, what happened is that, um, so it was just before um, 2004 and just before the um, um, attacks uh, in Madrid. Um, so the question was, uh, okay, I had to choose a topic for my, um, for my thesis and... Um, since it was that event that just uh, had happened, um, I, I chose that. And because I think um, that was quite shocking for many people uh, in Europe, although, of course, Europe um, had had enough experience with terrorism before, but that was something relatively new in some sense. And um, I think I was just curious to understand what it is and where it's coming from and, you know, try to explain in some, in some way. Of course, at the time, my approach was more... Um, legal uh, because I had studied law before um, but then I had a chance to um, study political science more in depth and um, with a scholarship in Cincinnati I had uh, the huge luck and honor to also work with Mia Bloom um, who at the time um, I thought was was amazing in, in the kinds of things that she would write about you know terrorism in the Middle East I thought you know she I really want to work with this person 
and uh, I wasn't disappointed. And um, she was uh, very much a mentor to me at the time, um, something that I hadn't had before at all. Um, and she also gave me the advice. I think also other people said that you know there was at some point a, a person who um, you know who gave direction in a sense. And uh, she said, you know, I mean, there's, there's already many people doing terrorism in the Middle East, and to be honest, you don't necessarily have the skills because you don't speak the language, so, you know, use your comparative advantage. Yeah, that's what she said to me, uh, which is those many languages that you can speak in Europe and just look at terrorism in Europe. So that's what I did. Um, mm -hmm. And then I also um, had the luck of... Um, of, of St. Andrews, just uh, having these, these scholarships um, at the time for uh, PhD um, students in the area of radicalization. So I applied for that. Um, and, you know, that's how it all started. <laughs> it was just a matter of, you know, coincidence and interest and um, really good people, having really good people around me. Yeah, and that, that was great advice that Mia gave, like play, play to yeah. your strengths. Uh, it's, and it's, I suppose it's what's, it's what's made, made your career, in a way, following that advice, in a way. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And imagine, I mean, of course, you know, in St. Andrews, um, you know, the, the best and brightest were there. Um, oh, of course. All, all the big names of, of terrorism uh, research. And, of course, I could, I could also work with, with John Horgan, who was my supervisor. Um, and um, I was very sad when he, when, when he left for, for the United States. But then, um, you know, I could therefore work with uh, his former supervisor with Mike Taylor which was again something completely amazing so um, yeah I think yeah <laughs> and it, it's it, their, their influence on your work is clear for anyone who, who's read it and you've put put both of them uh, down two of their pieces um, as influencing uh, your research and the first one is that you put down was uh, Max's book The Terrorist uh, why did you choose this book? What was what was the influence? What did you gain from from this piece? Um, well, <clears throat> I think um, th th there are several things that that really apply to all all uh, all three of those books. Um, and if I may, I would like to also name them. But but I will first answer your question about mm. this uh, book. So there are several things there. So first of all, um, I think he, well, the book is not uh, empirical in that sense. Yeah, it's very theoretical in the sense that he is basically reviewing the various approaches to terrorism existing at the time. Um, but what he definitely also does, and what is also extremely useful, um, is teaching you how to ask the right questions kind of, you know, sowing the seed of doubt. <laughs> I think that's really fundamental for any researcher. Um, and also, I think what he always was capable of doing is to make people excited about what, what they do, uh, excited and curious and doubtful, you know? Mm. Um, so b beyond that kind of, kind of approach was, I think, the most important thing, which I think is still with me now, and I'm still trying to, to, to solve this, is this normality of the terrorist. You know? So um, I think, I don't know if he was the first one, but at least you know, in, in, my, in my experience, he was the one that, that first said that and really argued um, and posed it as an issue, the fact that you know, the terrorist is, as a matter of fact, a normal person. So um, um, this seems to be nowadays, and especially for us, kind of obvious, 
But at the same time, every every time something happened, then you know what, what the media says, or you know what, what researchers say, or, or journalists, you know what went wrong in this person's life. Yeah, this is the first question. Like trying to okay. Uh, he was divorced, or he was, I don't know, he didn't have a job, and so forth. So always looking for the specifics, whereas Max, Max wrote in the book, um, you know, research always just found the normal yeah, in these people's lives, and this is really the issue. <laughs> now, of course, this is a, in, in and of itself satisfactory because if everything is normal, then how do you have terrorism at the end of it all, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, and, and this, this remains for me till now, this tension between normality and specificity. Yeah? And this runs through all sorts of approaches to the explanation of, of why people become terrorists. Um, and I think um, we haven't really solved it yet. Uh, and for me now, the, the way that, that I found, at least for now, is to say, you know, you really have to look at, in detail um, at this path. Because what also happens um, often is that people just look at the beginning, you know, how did it all start? But the whole thing is, of course, and we know, <laughs> um, a very long and complex process. But I think we don't really know enough of what's going on in this process. And one kind of, and it's of course not sufficient to say, okay, well, we have a few phases, and 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 these phases are, phases are supposed to be the same every time. This is of course quite artificial. Um, it would be nice if we could identify these like that, but that's obviously not the case. So. Uh, what I'm trying to do now, I, I, I guess, is, is just to look at this uh, this detail. But anyways, I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> no worries, no. Going back to the book, uh, another thing that that he also did was to um, establish the link between um, the the research of of terrorism and and um, you know the research of crime. Yeah. You know? hmm. um, and he even he even posed, I think, also for the first time, the differentiation between getting involved in criminality and committing criminal acts. Uh, the same thing, you know, getting involved in terrorism and committing um, terrorist uh, acts. Uh, different situations, different factors. Um, and and um, I guess, the, um, well, I have, I, have, I have a lot of things I could say about this book. <laughs> also, what I found really useful for my work is this idea of feedback loop, yeah? To say that, because, you know, the question is also, or, or always, how do people get involved and how does this progress? And I, and I think this idea of feedback loop is actually quite useful because it tells you, well, you know, people do things. At the beginning, might be just, you know, by chance, but they get feedback from the social environment. And if the social environment um, gives you a positive feedback, then you might actually continue doing this, you know, mm-hmm. or not. Uh, and I think this mechanism is also really, really important uh, to understand how one progresses through radicalization. Uh, and again, well, I guess as, as a final point, um, also what he says about ideology. Yeah, and I think he has also said it um, in, in the interview with you, the fact that, you know, if you want to understand how people get involved in terrorism, it actually doesn't suffice to just look into ideology because we're dealing with behavior. Yeah, we're dealing with behavior. And of course, in my work, I try to go a little bit beyond that and kind of try to, to um, understand how, you know, discourse has also an effect on individual behavior, but the point is, you know, just by reading the Quran uh, or by reading, you know, some sort of ideological um, material, you, do, but you won't understand the psychology of the person who is about to become a terrorist. And I think that that's something that, you know, all these things seem to be uh, quite quite basic, but I think they're really important and they get forgotten sometimes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so you're you're, com- com- yeah? you're you're completely right. Like we need to, like. 
it might seem obvious when you say it, but it's not like it still needs to be said. And it's they're important messages that I like. I got those those important messages from Max and John's work as well. And it's just uh, that whole point about ideology. It's come up throughout the podcast series that if we're just looking at ideology, we're missing a trick because, as you said, you're not understanding the full behavior. You're not understanding all the influences. You're you're and you you this the blinkeredness that you can that can happen at, by just focusing on ideology can really um can really weaken any countermeasures that we put in play in place because if we're only focusing on ideology and if we're only looking to counter ideology well the ideology might necessarily be the reason why someone is becoming or staying involved so we have to get that more all-rounded, uh, all-rounded opinion, all-rounded knowledge about it as well. Do you you talk about Max's um, Max's uh, discussion of uh, criminality and drawing on uh, understanding why people have become involved in crime and to understand why people become involved in um, in terrorism? Um, and in your re- in recent years, you've been drawing a lot on criminological theory as well. How do you find, in general, criminological theory? Uh, how do you find it when applying it to a terrorist uh, population? Do you think it works? Well, I think um, terrorism study is. I mean, I, I see terrorism studies as an interdisciplinary field. Mm-hmm. Uh, in general. So I think not just criminology, but also psychology, sociology, political science, you know, all these can bring uh, an important contribution. So therefore, I mean, I think criminology is definitely a field that has um, a lot to say um, that, you know, that there are um, theories and concepts that that we can use. Um, I wouldn't say that, um, you know, um, crime is the same as terrorism. Um, so I would say it's probably not sufficient, <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, I also wouldn't say that you can identify, um, you know, um, types of terrorists to say, okay, well, he's a bomb maker, and that's why his psychology is such and such. Um, because what we see with terrorism is that people change roles um, a lot. I mean, of course, you will have, uh, for example, leaders or ideologues who, you know, just remain that. But um, in, in general, there's a, there's a big fluctuation. Um, however, and, and to be specific, um, I think um, many of the criminological theories are useful um, for the understanding of terrorism. And I myself, I worked with rational choice, uh, <laughs> I guess, obviously, because that's what Max and, and John also did. Um, but also because I thought it makes sense, yeah, so what they said is like, you know, um, you also have to think about, you know, what's in it for them. Um, you know, you, you can't just assume that people are pushed towards terrorism or any other kind of behavior. Um, there, there is always uh, something to gain out of, of the, what they do. And, um, of course, that, that is not as easy as to say, oh, well, they were not integrated or, you know, sorts of other kinds of root causes. Uh, it makes um, counter-terrorism a bit more difficult, <laughs> but, um, you know, that, that doesn't make it less uh, less accurate. So, I'm, I'm, yeah, I could say that I'm quite a big fan of, of this kind of approach. Very good. And you mentioned there again, John, and you mentioned before that you went and did your 
PhD in St. Andrews and started off under John's supervision. And you've identified his, his book, The Psychology of Terrorism, as being an, another influential text for you as well. Um, what was it that you drew from this that might have been different than, that, than what you gained from uh, Max's book, The Terrorist? Um, well, um, I think, uh, well, you know, um, John's book um, is, um, I think, <laughs> I guess, I guess for, for readers, okay, for, for listeners who haven't, um, who are not into in this field necessarily, I think it's definitely easier to read. Now, of course, uh, not easier than, you know, Looming Towers or, you know, that kind of literature, but um, um, Max's book is very technical. Um, Whereas I think John is trying to make the whole thing kind of more understandable uh, for the for for the reader for the student, and he also has um, a lot of empirical examples, um, which makes the whole thing livelier. And um, what he's also trying to do is to basically um, develop this model of of um, involvement and disengagement, you know, with the phase of you know becoming involved, being involved, and you know disengaging. Um, and but but again, this is not the kind of model that I that I mentioned beforehand with those phases, uh, <laughs> but rather a framework. Yeah. Um, so and, and and within it, what what I think it was really important. Um, what he what he also says, uh, I think, relatively often is this idea of small steps. Yeah, that involvement doesn't happen. You know, from you know overnight. But there are steps that not even the person necessarily realizes. Uh, that they happen, and um, especially at the beginning, it's very difficult to pinpoint, you know, when it all starts. And this, I have this problem, for example, when I interview people because, um, you know, I can't just ask them, so, you know, how or, or when did you become a terrorist or when did you become an extremist? Because, first of all, it's it's impossible to say, and it doesn't really happen this way, so that, okay, now I'm going to sign something, and as of now, I'm a terrorist, I'm an extremist. It, it's very gradual, and I think... Um, what also comes out of his work and, and, and others is that um, when when the person kind of goes through this process, well, that person doesn't seem to be something extraordinary. Um, and I think that's, that's actually quite important. Um, and, and he captures this through this idea of small steps. Um, and this is something that De La Porta also um, says from a different angle, from, you know, from, from, from a different theoretical angle. But the idea is the same that uh, basically people get in and have the impression that it's, you know, the most normal thing uh, in the world, and everybody's doing it anyways, they're friends. Um, so, yes, and then they're, they're kind of surprised that they're in, um, or, you know, when it's about radicalizing, they, and you interview them. I don't know if you had this experience, but they, they think back and they think, wow, you know, hmm, <laughs> I don't really know how that happened. <laughs> um, but that tells us a lot about how this Becoming a terrorist has to do with, you know, with just life. And it's a really, really very complex thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, like, as you say, someone doesn't just go, okay, today I'm a terrorist now. It's, yeah. you have to understand, you have to understand everything that goes with it. And you mentioned uh, Donatella Della Porta's work, and that's the final piece that you picked that uh, has influenced you. It's her seminal piece, Social Movements, Political Violence and the State. Now, while Max and John's work was coming from, uh, a psychological uh, background. This is uh, very much grounded in uh, in social movement theory here. What, so, what was it that um, that this was? What what for the listeners who mightn't have read this or mightn't be aware of Donatella's work? What was she saying within this? 
Um, well, um, the Laporta's work is, um, in a sense, very extensive. I mean, thinking about the data sources. So she's coming from um, social movement research, uh, which um, traditionally dealt with uh, democratic movements, uh, or, or you know, how, as they say, the, the good movements. Um, so political violence has become, for social movement research, um, has become of interest relatively recently, you know, in the last, I, think, uh, I don't know, uh, decades, I guess. Um, so in a sense, her, her work at the time was quite um, pioneering, yeah, if one can say it this way. Um, so, um, but, but of course, she used a lot of the conceptual uh, material available in the literature. And of course, social movements deal primarily with movements, <laughs> which is with groups. Um, so basically, she looked at the case of Germany and and um, and Italy, and more specifically at um, at um, uh, left-wing uh, terrorist organizations, the um, RAF, the Red Army faction in Germany, and the Red Brigades uh, in Italy, and try to understand how. Um, you know how how these groups formed out of the broader social movement, um, how they how they went underground and how and why they did what they did. Um, now the particular um, um, I, I guess feature, I mean, you know, there's, there's ma again many many good things that I can say about a book, but um, I guess first of all is the this idea of very rich data that I already mentioned. So she looked at. Um, you know, um, a lot of documents, core documents. She talked to um, an incredible amount of people, <laughs> something which is not really possible nowadays with jihadis, but at the time it was possible. So, uh, you know, what she says draws on a really rich empirical material, which, as we know, in terrorism studies is very valuable. Um, the other thing is that she tried to work at, at three levels of analysis, you know, what she calls the macro, the meso, and the micro level. Now, of course, um, to me and I guess to people who um, who use who work specifically on individuals, I think the individual might come a bit short, uh, as I said, because of course this social movement, um, you know, research tradition is is rather focused on uh, on groups. But nevertheless, at, at least you know she tried to kind of combine these three levels and to understand how the individual interacts with the group, how how they interact with the state, you know what, what kind of processes um, happen uh, there, what kind of dynamics uh, we have, and try to also I guess is the third point um, to um, combine empirical detail and and theory. Yeah, I mean it's, it's to, to give kind of a, a rich description of, of the empirical uh, material, but also to try to develop um, theory in a, in a sense of mechanisms, a middle range, of course, and not something that is universally applicable. But in that sense, she went beyond the kind of typical social movement literature at the time, which was very much descriptive, um, yeah. So um, I think there's a lot, of, a lot to learn. I mean, I could go more into detail um, also about, for example, um, an interesting mechanism I found that, that she came up with, and um, I think he hasn't really really exploited it so far, you know, talking about ideology, for example. She talked a lot about how, um, you know, there's an interaction between, um, you know, um, affection towards other members of the group and the extent to which um, you start to believe in the ideology. Yeah? So it's kind of a um, yeah, reciprocal relationship. The, the closer you get to the people, the more 
you get into the ideology, the more ideology, you know, the more you get into the ideology, the closer you get the people. So you kind of, uh, after a point, you cannot get out anymore because you have these this affective ties. Yeah, she calls them affective ties. Um, and then slowly but surely, there's this alternative worldview through the ideology. Um, but there you have two issues which we have uh, until now relatively little um, clarified, I guess, uh, the role of emotions, yeah, um, and also ideology. But as I say, ideology is not in the sense of what is written somewhere, but the kinds of cognitions that one has, the kinds of worldviews, the frames, yeah, uh, which are something different uh, from ideology. I think Max also makes this differentiation. And do you? I think I think uh, all three of them are really pioneering, and they're really opening, um, you know, all sorts of doors towards uh, approaches and questions. And I think there's a lot to learn uh, from there, or a lot of uh, how to say, like um, be- the beginnings of the road, <laughs> where can one can you know go on and and um, yeah, find out some more. Yeah, no, they're they're definitely three exceptionally influential and exceptionally strong pieces of work, and. I think I, w- I would be along with you encouraging everyone uh, interested in this area to, if they haven't done so already, to, to engage with these three, these three texts. Do you find through your interviews that this, um, what De- Delaporta was describing as effective ties, do you see that coming through uh, from your interviewees as well, uh, very similar to how she, did, she described it? Yes, of course. I think... Um um, you know, ever since we have, we've had the, the the book by Mark Sageman about social networks, right, understanding a terrorist networks, which uh, I think many people thought at the time, wow, this is really, really innovative. Well, it, of course it's not, because the Laporta already talked about these social networks, uh, already talked about the fact that, you know, before um, these individuals joined or formed these terrorist groups, they were a part of the broader movement, of the student movement, uh, and that they were joining together, and that, you know, um, having these friendship ties or couples. For example, I heard the other day there was a conference, and um, they said that, you know, um, in, in left-wing terrorism, there was an, um, um, an amazing number of couples that, that, jo- that joined as couples, right? Mm. Um, so that, that's, that's the first phase of how, how, you know, attachment and emotions play a role there, but also during, um, during membership. And I think that um, you know depends depends on the on the situation. I think um, what she also drew attention to, and, and I guess John as well, was the fact that you know you also have to look at what happens during involvement and what that she calls it greedy institution. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this underground organization is a greedy institution. What that does to the individual kind of dynamics you have in there. So imagine um, you are um, um, how is it not. Um, well, you, people look for you, yeah, a police is looking for you, uh, you have to hide, um, you only have a few people that you can rely on, um, and um, of course, at the effective level, what happens there, um, it, you know, the, the, um, the effective ties become stronger through that, through the fact that, you know, you're all in that together, facing an outside enemy and a threat. And I think that's not something specific to, uh, you know, to undergrad or terrorist organization. That happens to, to any kind of group that is under threat, in, you know, in some way or, uh, or somewhere. Yeah, and it, it, with that, like, it's... When we're analysing individual as well as organisational involvement, we can't just treat it as a, a stagnant entity. We can't just say, OK, the reason why someone became involved will be the same reason why someone stays involved as well. 
Uh, we we have to look at the evolution of an individual's engagement as well as the evolution of the organization and that that does change the these factors do change the the individual as well as the organization so we mm-hmm. we really have to to be able to engage with that but that's other people's work that influenced you and um, what we're going to talk about for the rest the majority of the rest of the podcast is your own research um, and you've picked three pieces um, for us to talk about here today uh, you've picked uh, your 2017 uh, co-authored book theory theories of terrorism you've got Islamist radicalization in Europe an occupational change process and subcultural theory applied to jihadi and right-wing radicalization in Germany and uh, Let's start with that last one, uh, first of all. Subcultural theory applied to jihadi and right-wing radicalization in Germany. Before we get into the, the piece itself, what exactly is subcultural theory um, for listeners who m- mightn't be aware of it? Um, okay, so um, this, um, th- first of all, there is no one theory. <laughs> there, there are um, several, and um, one could... I guess one could have, you know, a um, classification of three categories. So you have, first of all, subcultural theory or theories in criminology. Uh, and there uh, people try to um, explain crime through the idea of subculture. Um, so there the, um, the approach was to say, well, you know, um, people who um, cannot achieve um, according to the mainstream standards um, become frustrated. Uh, so, therefore, they create an alternative um, culture, the subculture, um, where there are alternative standards for achievement and there they can achieve. So, this was an explanation for um, the so-called criminal or deviant subcultures. Um, the second type uh, is from uh, cultural studies, and um, they didn't deal necessarily with um, with with you know criminal or deviant uh, subcultures, but rather with what they call spectacular subcultures. So we're talking here um, about music, such as punks, for example. Um, and they try to explain them, their emergence, and you know what, what they did, again through some sort of a reaction um, to, um, I guess, failure to make it according to mainstream standards. Uh, but they frame it as protest, so not necessarily. Um, as frustration, but as as protest against um, against the mainstream. Um, and then finally, we have all sorts of postmodern approaches, where you know you have a lot of contestation of the word subculture itself. And you know, you're not like there's not a unitary subculture, but several. You don't have to have subcultures, but tribes. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it gets a bit more it gets a bit more complicated. Uh, but what I what I did in in this um, article was to um, test a little bit. I know that, you know, saying testing is a bit uh, exaggerated because I didn't have a representative sample, which we can hardly have in this <laughs> in this area. Uh, but yeah, I was I was having a couple of cases and I looked to see to which extent the one or the other approach, you know, the deviant versus the, you know, the cultural approach to subculture, whether or not they apply um, and I found that, and I think that goes uh, very much hand in hand with the rational choice approach, the fact that, you know, people were not frustrated and somehow pushed um, towards becoming right-wing extremists or jihadis, but that they were really uh, and actively contesting the kinds of um, norms and values that, you know, they saw in the mainstream culture. 
uh, and that their involvement was was very agentic, yeah, in a sense. Um, that they weren't manipulated or frustrated by the circumstances, but they actually had, um, you know, a, a political um, objective. And there's also other things. Um, um, I guess, you know, there is a, there is now, um, I guess, a, a wave, but maybe not a wave, but, a <laughs> um, you know, a new approach to, um, to studying terrorism, um, looking more through the cultural lens, but not to say that culture is a cause of terrorism, but to understand to which extent culture plays a role. Um, and this has become, of course, obvious with the with the productions of the so-called Islamic State and um, the fact that you know many also sympathizers are producing so many things online, and you have videos and and photos and symbols and colors and and videos, and it's it's. Um, I mean, th this kind of artifacts, as as we call them, have been there since. Um, forever, of course, but uh, nowadays also because of the new technologies and the social media, it's just becoming a lot more. Um, and there's uh, people who say, well, you know, if you want to understand especially how young people get attracted to um, things like organizations like the Islamic State, um, so if you want to understand that, then um, you should probably not look necessarily into the messages or the ideology, but rather look at these artifacts and how they are um, produced um, to, um, you know, make them attractive uh, to these young people. And, and, and you can see how, for example, the productions for um, the, for you know, for the West are different to the ones for, you know, the... Arab world, for example, um, a completely different um, content, and of course, for 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 the people here, what what is used a lot are um, pop cultural um, elements, because obviously people who live here are familiar with those, <laughs> so you would use that the, that kind of material to uh, you know to make the video attractive um, for the public here. So in the in the in the article, I also looked a little bit of at how um, you know these these things are created, and I think um, yeah, subculture theory has a couple of concepts that that help us a little bit. Uh, one of them is bricolage, for example, um, where uh, they say, well, you know, subcultures um, take objects out of the mainstream uh, culture, out of other subcultures, they combine them. Um, and then you have homolo homology, which means that this product is then made to resonate or to be in line with the ideology. Yeah. So through this, you can understand a lot, not just uh, about you know jihadi productions, but also about right-wing extremism nowadays, as we have seen. Um, for many years, um, I speak now about Germany and Austria because I know this best. Um, some years ago, there would be not much going on online, and if then you'd have some websites. Yeah. Now you have groups very active on Twitter and Facebook, and all sorts of other social media. So they have also understood the power of this kind of material, and I think we just don't know um, enough about how this works. So this is this is now a major research area for me to understand how uh, these products. Um, have an effect on individual radicalization, and what are the psychological processes behind the production of these kinds of, um, um, yeah, artifacts? No, no, it um, it, it sounds it, it like it's 
it's it just adding to our growing understanding of what's going on here and by focusing on these products it's uh now it, it really gives us a more rounded understanding it sort of reminds me of uh the recent book by thomas Heghammer looking at culture mm-hmm. as well it's uh it really fits in um and gives us a uh, a much more all-rounded uh, understanding. Could you tell our listeners about um, the methodologies you used? Uh, how did you go about doing this research um, for this article? Um, well, it, um, it's uh, challenging because um, you need to use two different methodologies and try to combine them in some way. <laughs> so... Um, very straightforward was 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 just um, you know to do to interview people. Um, so I asked them about um, I used a so-called problem-centered interview because the interview was about more. It was about the radicalization process in general. Um, so I did that interview, but then I also had um, some more specific questions because you can have them at the end after the big narrative. Um, and there I asked them, you know, what what they. Um, what they were uh, looking at, what kinds of, uh, you know, what were their sources of information, um, if they had any specific clothes, uh, if, if that had any specific meaning uh, to them, and so forth. So I had specific questions about this uh, subcultural artifact. Um, now, that, uh, you know, in relation to the subcultural theory from the cultural studies perspective, um, uh, for, for the other kind of subcultural theory from um, you know, deviants, um, the rest of the interview would have been also very useful because there you could see, okay, well, was the person frustrated? Did he or she try to achieve something and they couldn't and therefore they, you know, they decided for this other um, career? Um, and it is, um, you know, <laughs> that there are uh, there are quite a few cases, um, I guess, famous cases also in in Germany, for example, there is this uh, rapper called um, Deso Dog who apparently recently died. Um, we don't know. There's uh, <laughs> every now and then there's news about his death. Um, anyway, this time it seems to be for real, and um, he used to be um, um, a successful rapper. That there's again, um, yeah, different <laughs> interpretations to which extent um, that was so. But you know, according to his interviews. Um, he was successful, and um, so he didn't. This, he didn't decide for this other um, career as a um, Salafi preacher because he had failed. Yeah, uh, and that's really a typical a typical example for that. Now coming back to the method, um, the um, the other method is how do you analyze uh, the actual artifacts? Yeah, and this um, this is not really uh, so present in this article. In, in the article, I dealt more with the actual biographies of the people that I was looking at. Um, so I must say, the right-wing radicals I interviewed myself. They they were all formers, um, and they were all um, members of uh, of this movement called uh, the Autonomous Nationalists. Which is a very interesting uh, phenomenon in itself. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, so and the, the jihadis, they were this was made uh, based on on open source data, um, yeah. But I think um, so. Again, this, this artifact analysis is not included in this particular um, article, but it's something that I'm working on now, um, and it's quite challenging because we don't actually have proper visual methods 
to understand the effects of this article of this artifact. So we have lots of methods to kind of map the content. But if I want to understand what is the effect of these images of these symbols on on the viewer, um, you know, there's nothing there. So um, I'm trying to combine frame analysis and this concept of bricolage and homology that I mentioned uh, with interview techniques and try to capture somehow this uh, this dynamic between visual and individual psychology. Well, very. Oh, wow. it, could you could could you tell us a bit about the autonomous nationalists? Uh, you said it was a, a fascinating case in, in in their own right as well. So, who are they? What do they What do they do? Uh, well, they are um, um, they are a right wing extremist. Um, well, I'm, I'm <laughs> movement movement in the sense that there are several groups, several local groups, but um, which are not necessarily connected to one another. Um, when I interviewed them, um, they were they, they had certain uh, hotspots uh, in Germany. Now, if you go especially online on Twitter, for example, then you will see in almost every major city in Germany, or <laughs> it doesn't really have to be major, <laughs> um, but you have really a lot of, uh, of local um, you know, groups. Now, there, um, the 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 interesting, I guess, feature. Well, they have very, <laughs> they have many, but the most dominant one, I guess, is is the fact that they try to be modern. So um, the idea was, you know, the classical um, comradeship person, you know, in a shirt or the classical skinhead um, are not particularly attractive. Uh, to people, you know, people get scared when they see a skinhead. <laughs> like, so, so they figured, okay, well, you know, um, we need to do something about the way we dress. We need to do something about um, the way we talk to people, about uh, the kinds of music that we listen to. So, um, you know, for the people who are familiar with right-wing extremism, um, uh, right-wing rock, for example, would be typical for, for the scene. Now, these people would listen to things like hip-hop. Um, and would dress very trendy, also a lot in black. Uh, what we would also do is to copy um, the um, far left uh, in the in, in terms of how they dressed and also how they organized, um, like they call them actions, actionen, yeah, uh, things like you know demonstrations or putting up a banner somewhere. And uh, very distinctive, a very distinctive element of this copying has been the so-called black block. Yeah, so black block is something typical for the left-wing autonomous, uh, something they do during demonstrations in order to make sure that the demonstration can go through the chain of police or at least make sure that police are not able to you know, pick up uh, individuals from the demonstration and arrest them. And it really looks like, you know, <laughs> like a black block. Uh, and they copied this. Yeah, so um, it's it's actually quite interesting. Sometimes I I show pictures in in presentations, and you cannot you cannot say which is which. Yeah, which is left, which is right, and of course there's another advantage to this in the sense that you uh, confuse your enemy. You confuse the left wing, you confuse the police because <laughs> they don't know who's who. <laughs> um, so and but but this is this is part of a, I think a, a broader movement going on now in the in the right wing spectrum which is to appear more modern, to appear more mainstream, 
and also the idea of trying to conquer the mainstream. Yeah. So you don't want to shock them. You want to convince them of your own views. Um, and for example, the identitarians are also part of this. Um, yeah, of this new right-wing wave, and I think that makes them. Um, not just interesting, but also more dangerous than, you know, people who are obviously, uh, let's say, neo-Nazi, for example. Yeah. No, it's a, it, it's something that obviously, as you, as you said, it's not just in, in Germany, it's not just in Austria, it's all around Europe and all around the world. We're, we're seeing this and we're, we're seeing similar, similar patterns, similar uh, things taking place in relation to, to right-wing extremism there. The next piece of yours that uh, that you chose is Islamist radicalization in Europe, an occupational change process. Um, could you tell the listeners about this piece? What were the aims in relation to it? And uh, what, what were your, your core findings? Well, I just, I need to say at the beginning that um, when, <laughs> when I started to research on this topic, radicalization was very new it was uh, i think nowadays there's a lot written on it already and it's um probably as much as on terrorism uh at that time we had the word but we didn't actually know what it was um and one 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 of the first things i had to do is i remember john said you know just go to the library and read everything you find on this <laughs> because you have to get your concept right first <laughs> okay <laughs> now that was very challenging uh because um there was not so much radicalization as such definitely nothing on islamist radicalization um on the other hand you had a lot of um radicalization in other fields even literature and you know uh sciences um and then the other the other thing was okay what's the relationship between that and things like extremism and fundamentalism. Um, and again, I think what was really interesting as compared to today, now we have extremism. Um, yeah, I mean, it's something that one hears um, all the time, almost. At the time, extremism was not, at least not in the English language, very present. Uh, it was, however, very present in the German language. So there you had a lot of literature, uh, also specifically on concepts, on extremism. So... You know, in the end, my first chapter <laughs> a lot uh, on on concepts, what is radicalization, and what's the relationship with all the other ones, and a lot of you know German literature cited <laughs> because they, they did write a lot of extre- on extremism. Now, I think this is you know it's not really finished all this work. I think um, also on the issue of concepts, and I know that radicalization is very um, contested as well. But, you know, I think in the end, it's something that we can use and it's up to us how we define it. I don't think there are bad words. They're just bad definitions. <laughs> um, anyway, so, um, you know, just because it was at the beginning, um, I, I had to, again, spend time on this on this conceptual um, issues. But then I also took the chance to create something new. So, um Therefore, I use grounded theory um, as a method. Now, there are several types of it, of course. Um, I use the one uh, by Barney Glazer, uh, which is a very staunch defendant of saying, you know, at the beginning, you have to ignore all theory. Of course, you can't ignore all theory, but at least you can try. (laughs) So his idea was to say, you know, just look at the data first and try to develop uh, your own theory, and then you look to see 
to which extent does it fit uh, w with whatever other theories you have out there. Um, now, that doesn't mean they just describe things. Uh, his, his method is actually very systematic on how you begin with data and how you end up with concepts uh, and an actual theory. Uh, but I guess central to, to the method is um, the idea of finding a central category, like something, you know, the, what, what he calls, you know, the social process, the, the, the thing that your participants care most about. <laughs> so this is really uh, challenging, but, you know, it basically makes it or breaks it. Um, and with, with me, after reading interviews, maybe I should say I, I did some interviews um, with jihadis, but my main method was uh, trial observation. Um, I think uh, people do it now a lot, but at the, the time it was relatively new, so I was the only <laughs> researcher hanging out in all those uh, courts in, in Germany. So, um, yeah, uh, central category, exactly, that's what I wanted to say. Um, so in, in that case, after reading the, those interviews and the trial notes, um, what became obvious to me is that what those people cared about or, or how they see themselves, how they saw themselves as, was, of course, not the terrorists, um, but what, you know, they, they did something. They, they talked about what they were doing, you know, as a, as a sort of occupation. That's how I came up with this occupation concept um, at all, um, because what they were really um, concerned with was more, for example, you know, th there was one who, um, who would translate um, things for Al-Qaeda at the time. Um, and he saw himself as a journalist, you know, like the, the kinds of things that he did. Uh, and so I, I basically started to look at this whole process from a different angle. Yeah, uh, how does one decide um, for um, for a particular occupation? Uh, then I then I realized, okay, well, you know, existing skills, for example, play a role. So, for example, if somebody is good in you know computers, for example, then he will have some sort of role in that area. Um, that also the organization is looking after these existing skills. The fact that people get trained, that they get professional in, in a particular in a particular field. And then, of course, the question of of motivation. Yeah, why? Um, not not really why, but um, for what <laughs> they do what they do. You know, what do they get back? So I developed some 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 motivational categories, which um, are quite similar in essence with with the ones that that John uh, developed. You know, he calls them lures, um, for example. But there's all these like you know things like status, yeah, like recognition, reward. Um, many of them, they wanted to actually make a difference, and you can see them. Uh, th this kind of case also nowadays, like say, you know, many people who went to Syria thinking that they can, you know, participate in the utopia of an Islamic state or wanted to help people over there. But also people who want to feel important, yeah. So who uh, basically, um, um, you know, who, who get the admiration of of all the other ones through the fact that they know a lot about religion or because they're particularly heroic on the battlefield, or things like that. So um, I developed this whole model around the category of occupation, but thinking about motivation, and, and at the same time, thinking about the role of, um, oh, I guess not what I call, but what one calls frames. Yeah, this is, again, from social movement theory. So I, I guess what, what, what the book does in the end is to combine this kind of criminological rational choice with framing theory from um, from social movements, but this came only 
afterwards. <laughs> like I had my model first and I realized, okay, well, you know, this has a lot to do with the Laporta's work, uh, also has to do with, with you know, uh, John Horgan's work, Max Taylor's work. But I think, I, in a sense, I probably go, um, I guess not beyond, but, you know, I'm trying to, um, I'm, I'm not finishing with with the with the kinds of you know motivations that they talk about, but I'm also looking towards the question, well, you know, why in this form? Yeah. So if it's about status, how come that it's in in, in this in this kind of form of being a you know a jihadi? Why not something else? So then thinking about how this course shapes these kinds of motivations, uh, and then and that's how framing theory comes in. And also the role of organizations that Viktorovich also uh, talks about. Um, so yeah, I'm not saying I have the solution <laughs> for radicalization processes, but I think it's a step forward in understanding how um, how um, you know this this kind of um, relatively rational choice motivations work with the kinds of um, uh, discursive environment that one has around uh, him or her and which one doesn't necessarily control a lot. And I think that's, again, the distension between, you know, like kind of free will and, and the situation uh, or, or the structure, um, actually. Yeah, and, and by framing it, by, by looking at it as an occupational change process as well, it, it goes back to what you were talking about with Max. It sort of, it normalizes, it looks at the, mm -hmm. the terrorist as a normal individual as well. And it, it, you can step away from the uh, the type of language that will condemn a moral language of understanding exactly what's going on. Uh, I think that's a very healthy way for all of us as terrorism researchers to be approaching this because we can get this uh, this more broader understanding there, and uh, it can really can really help us uh, help us move on as well. You, you mentioned that um, you looked at the, the role that recognition plays and the the motivation to be for to gain recognition. Who's the recognition from whom uh, are you talking about, or is this uh, recognition from from a wide population? Oh well, um, definitely from from the group. Yeah. So, um, I mean, if you think about it, like um, you know, various kinds of social environments, you you have the very close one, um, your group, and then there's a broader one, perhaps. Say, uh, not necessarily the movement at the time. Now we have a movement. At the time, there was no Salafi movement as such. Um, but say, you know, other people who are not necessarily radicals, but who have um, certain ideas which are kind of connected. So, um, and this, I think it's a very important point. I think this is something that one is struggling a lot with in terms of counterterrorism. So what do you do with, for example, um, you know, Salafi preachers, like the ones who don't necessarily say go to Syria, but who talk to you a lot about how, you know, Muslims are being oppressed all over the place and how it is a duty for you to help Muslims and, you know, and things like that, or just the, the, the you know, other kinds of ideas that basically are not as radical and perhaps not as concrete, but, um, you know, that they kind of, without them, you couldn't go to the next level, yeah? And this is something that we have seen uh, work, in also in the in the 70s, I mean, De La Porta also kind of noticed like you know you already have this kind of um, um, how to say you already are in a certain 
um, environment with certain ideas, and from this to the next level is not so far. It doesn't mean that they, you know, they all will make this this step, but you know, some will. Um, and that, and and I think you know, coming back to your to your question, what about recognition? I think people, um, you know, who go further, I think they definitely have the explicit recognition of the the inner group of the inner core. But they also think um, deep down that they will have the recognition of, of the others. And then they're quite surprised to learn that, you know, this is not the case. And I think this is something, <laughs> if we think now historically, yeah, something quite typical for terrorists in general, you know, thinking that, um, you know, eventually um, the whole community will realize um, that, you know, it was the right thing to do. Uh, but or, or that you know they will get this, this support eventually, which never happens. Um, I think Martha Crenshaw uh, mentioned mentioned this um, at some point. You know this um, this naive thinking. Mm -hmm. So so it's a mixture of actual recognition and expected recognition. They, they think they will get once they do something or when something changes. And um, with your experience uh, from not just analyzing. Uh, Islamist radicalization, but also uh, looking at right-wing radicalization. Do you feel that this um, this approach and this way of looking at it is also applicable when looking at uh, those uh, those right-wing extremists as well? Oh yes, for sure. Um, I think um, this is this is something. I mean, you know, co comparative research. <laughs> this hmm. is really long overdue. Um, Hopefully, I'll be able to um, to publish something on this soon. Uh, but I think, um, you know, regardless of ideology, if you just look at the individual radicalization process, the dynamics going on, the kinds of, um, of course, I talked about the motivation, which I think is quite similar. I mean, I can already say because I did interview right-wing extremists, for example. Um, but also how you get involved. Yeah? I mean, the, the, the kinds of mechanisms at the beginning, they're, they're quite similar. Uh, and it's it's quite uh, regardless of <laughs> of of ideology. Um, yeah. uh, that doesn't mean to say I think there's a lot of resistance towards this idea of comparison, uh, but this is based on the on the wrong premises. I mean, just because I compare from a socio psychological perspective, for example, it doesn't mean that I say the ideology the ideologies are the same. Of course, there are scholars who compare ideologies as well. Uh, and um, it might be actually a case for it. Yes, it's not. It's not my interest. I'm just saying that you know, just because you have differences in ideologies doesn't mean that you cannot compare these processes. And I know this is um, in in the UK, in the States. This is something quite obvious, I think. But here uh, on the continent, um, yeah, there's still resistance to this idea of of uh, comparison. But it's coming because I think this is one of the next steps. Yeah, no, it it definitely is, and it's a it's something that we have to to continue on uh, continue on pushing for. Now, when when you were introducing that, you were talking about the influence of Barney Glazer and how it said ignore all theories at the beginning. But um, your last piece that you're going to we're going to discuss, uh, you weren't ignoring theories. This is actually a it's a book on theories of terrorism. Uh, it's uh, it's a piece that you you caught authored and was published by Routledge last last year. So. What, uh, what was the, the motivation behind writing this book and behind putting this together? And what did you want to achieve? Well, um, this is some, I mean, it's, um, 
uh, <laughs> you know, if I were to make a joke, it would be, you know, my, my German influence, you know, I need to have some structure in this field, <laughs> some order. <laughs> um, no, but I think, um, you know, in, in other disciplines or fields, you have, um, you have textbooks saying, you know, these are the theories or... Um, and and in, in terrorism studies, uh, I mean, you have some readers, for example, but they are just a collection of articles. So um, for for somebody who's new to the field, for a student, for example, it's it can be very difficult to navigate um, because you have very many uh, good pieces, who which are, however, um, how to say, they're specialized on, say, the Middle East or suicide bombing, you know. Um, and they can go very deep um, in the theory, for example. On the other hand, you have uh, pieces which do not necessarily tell you where they're coming from theoretically. Yeah? Um, so they, they might present to you some, some concepts, some theories, but without actually making the connection to the broader um, social science approach or to the specific theory, for example, in criminology that they're actually uh, drawing on. So the idea of the book was, first of all, to, to kind of organize um, a little bit the, the kinds of theories available, and I developed three approaches. So <laughs> I call them deterministic, intentional, relational. So deterministic, that means, um, you know, the, those kinds of uh, cause-effect approaches, root causes, yeah? So <laughs> the, those kinds of approaches, you know, just need to identify the cause and then, you, you know, you can, you can do away with the, with the, with the issue. Uh, then, you know, the, the more rational choice uh, kinds of, kind of approaches. And here, um, again, um, also linking to what, to what uh, Max Taylor said in, uh, in your podcast, um, rational choice, not in the economic, in the now uh, economic sense of you know uh, homo economicus, like somebody who who does this kind of very cold calculation based on you know cost uh, and gain, um, but rather this kind of everyday rationality. Yeah, just the idea that people do things uh, with some with some expectations of gain in some way. Yeah. Uh, so, so th th those kinds of approaches, and then, um, and then the relational. And this, this has been more developed in the in the social uh, movement literature, um, saying that you know, if you want to understand radicalization, you, you don't look at the individual or, or the structure, but you look at the interaction, the process is going on. Now, these kinds of approaches are, of course, for for the questions why and how uh, apply to individuals and groups. So um, I divided again, you know, individual approaches and approaches to explaining groups or terrorism in general. Um, what I also wanted to do is to um, try to combine or include the so-called, you know, orthodox or traditional terrorism studies <laughs> and the, the critical approaches. Because, you know, and if you've seen as well, what you have is this, this terrible divide between the two, whereas, um, of course, I guess we cannot deny that there are different paradigms at play, but you have these paradigms all over the place in every uh, social science. So it's not something surprising. I mean, you know, um, you have critical theory applied to all sorts of other areas. So it was just normal. Then at some point it will come to terrorism as well. But it doesn't mean that, you know, you can only have books on this or on the other. Yeah. So and I try, try to basically explain where these are coming from, 
that there are um, a lot of parallels and connections. For example, just because you're not a critical scholar doesn't mean that you don't work qualitatively, that you don't uh, think a lot about, you know, how people interpret things or what is the responsibility of the researcher. So, you know, the, the lines are not that, <laughs> the lines are not that clear. Um, yeah, so, so I basically also wanted to kind of include those, those two approaches also because sometimes you see, you know, for example, here on the continent, you see a lot of critical um, approaches being developed and taught, whereas uh, in the States it's, it's you know, the, 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 op the, the other um, kind of directions. And, and I think it's not healthy to just, you know, look at one or the other. So that was the other, um, I guess, um, objective of the book. And um, I must say I put less emphasis on, um, on you know, definitions, uh, but there is a chapter. Um, we, we also have a, a guest um, author. Her name is Asta Mascali-Unaite, and I apologize again because I'm sure I haven't pronounced her name properly. Um, but she is an amazing scholar, and she wrote an amazing chapter on, on definitions and also one on counterterrorism. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the idea of the book is to basically give the, the – the kind of basically that's a little bit of genealogy as well. So say, okay, well, you have this article about this topic. Where does it come from? So I'm trying to uh, kind of um, um, how to say to trace back approaches uh, or, or or concrete uh, pieces of research to the theories and to the broader approach in that particular social science, and also show how many um, disciplines play a role. Uh, but at the same time, to make sure that the person doesn't get lost in all this, uh, <laughs> yeah, because of course we know that there's so much written on terrorism. I mean, it's just uh, it's just crazy. So if you're a student who only has I don't know like a semester or maybe just one course, uh, then you need something that 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 leaves, gives you an orientation. Um, and you know, for example, if I read something, ah, okay, well this is this approach coming from this kind of paradigm. Um, yeah, so it's a different a different way of working with the material. Of course, it's very risky as well, and I hope nobody is upset because, of course, we couldn't, you know, integrate um, everyone and everything. And um, there are particular um, influences that I've had in my career from particular people. So, of course, that's kind of obvious as well in the book. But um, I try to be, you know, as as inclusive as as possible. And um, yeah, I guess I also I was looking at what people teach, uh, what what kinds of um, texts are on, on syllabi. Um, so um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> kind of reflects what what the community thinks that you know are the most important um, texts in the field. Yeah, it's I I think it's it's an excellent contribution to the to the area and especially for those students who are new to the the field and want to get everything uh, in in one place to get a, a grounding and understanding in in where this has all come from. It's for any any module leader, any program leader who's looking for a new textbook on terrorism. This is definitely one to consider. It's a uh, it's a, a great contribution and uh, something that I'll be bringing in for my students um, to to get them to get give them a greater understanding of of uh, what goes behind what's what's come before and uh, and to get a an all rounded understanding of this area and with with doing that by writing a, a textbook like this you would have been immersed in in all the research that that's been going on or a lot of the research. Um, around at the moment and do, how did you feel the overall health of terrorism research was from engaging in this process um 
think um, we are. I think we're becoming better. <laughs> um, you know, the 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 problem has always been the fact that there is not enough primary data. The problem has always been that there is not enough, um, you know, actual scientific concepts applied. Um, you know, so so the critique has always been that you know you have some sort of anecdotal pieces uh, with next to no evidence and you know uh, no use of say for example psychological concepts or, or theories and I think this is changing um, slowly but is changing so methodologically speaking I see a lot of new work um, using primary data and I see a lot of you know as you said before all these, those criminological uh, theories for example being um, applied and you know all this um, innovative work uh, being done, so I'm I'm actually quite optimistic. Uh, but as I say, I see the progress as being relatively slow, and um, I think there's also still resistance to um, certain types of questions, um, and still the dominance of certain approaches over others. Resistance to what type of questions? To what, resistance to what type of questions are you talking about? Oh uh, well, for example, uh, this this idea of uh, of comparison, mm. um, of of comparing different different kinds um, of um, you know of of involvement in terrorism. Although it's not different kinds of, it's just involvement different kinds of um, of terrorism. Mm. And um, what I also think it's um, in a sense, perhaps now, this is not this is not really a, a question of resistance. It's more a question of um, innovation, which might be necessary. Just something that has occurred to me recently, just looking at this um, nexus between you know criminality and terrorism, um, and the fact that so many IS, for example, terrorists have these uh, criminal backgrounds. Um, and of course, one thing is to say, okay, well, you know, what can criminology tell us about it? Uh, the other thing is, you know, is there something new going on with terrorism? Because um, I'm not sure if the ways in which people got involved, for example, in the IRA um, or Al-Qaeda is the same thing with what is going on now with especially very young people. Um, so it might be the case that we need to adapt the very definition of terrorism. To give you an example, um, a core element of terrorism is this political um, element, right? Mm. Um, I'm not saying that ideology is everything, but still, you know, you, the, the, you need to have some sort of political objective. And um, you see individuals who are not necessarily so much into into that and more into other things such as, you know, uh, producing uh, nice pictures on Facebook or Twitter. Um, the other thing which, and now I'm coming back to the resistance question, <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is, and it has to do a bit more with extremism, not necessarily with, with terrorism, is how the boundary seems to be blurred between now, you know, extremism and the mainstream. 
so I talked before about how the extreme right is trying to become more um, acceptable to the mainstream, not in content, but in presentation. So, I mean, in the overt content as well, but not, you know, not the actual content, <laughs> if I may say so. Um, on the other hand, I see also a move from the mainstream to the right, so that they kind of m meet at a certain point. So, personally, I'm a bit worried about this, this gray area between mainstream and the and the extreme, and but I'm not sure that you know those kinds of questions will get the funding <laughs> uh, needed. No. Yeah, and it's and that's the problem. A lot, a lot of the time, you're you're chasing the funding and want, and you're doing the research that that the funders want done in a way. And we we need to be we need to be asking different questions that aren't always the the ones that might be the most popular at the time or being seen as the most important at the time. But if we were only doing that, we'd miss so much else. So it's a, yeah, it's something we have yeah. to watch out for, for certain. But it's, no, uh, definitely. And, and the other thing is also, I mean, um, of course, there's this whole radicalization and CVE discussion. Um, I mean, I had to think again of, of what Max said. I mean, you know, I really have to say it. He's so inspiring every time <laughs> he says something. Um, but he said, you know, like it, 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 it's, it's talked about as if it were a disease. You know, it's like we have, you have the state, and you know, you just have to do something to get rid of it. And of course, it misses the entire point of of um, it being a process. Um, this is the entire point of radicalization, not necessarily being something bad. I mean, you know, in, in history, there were radicals who were actually seen as the good guys because they were the ones for human rights and democracy. Uh, but radicalization is, again, not the same as terrorism. I mean, you can be a radical, you can radicalize without ever uh, becoming a terrorist um, at any point. Um, so, but, but still, like, what is going on now is... Um, what 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 governments and also the EU are trying to do is to combat radicalization, which yeah. is completely senseless. Uh, I mean, you can combat terrorism, of course, but you know how are you going to combat radicalization, <laughs> which is not really it's not really a crime, and uh, you know it's a very complex process, and you know th this this whole idea of criminalizing things that didn't happen, <laughs> just kind of the the the. The possibility that it might happen is already criminalized, and you have all this all this money invested uh, into this. Also, from a from a deterministic perspective, thinking that you know radicalization is caused by something, so you have to look at these root causes and you know do away with them. It's really it's really a, a bad direction, and unfortunately, there's lots of money um, you know concentrating this area. Um, and, you know, if, if you come up with, with things like, you know, you have to really look at, you know, people's biographies, you know, like the Laporte or Horgan, and, and it takes time, and if nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> it's like, completely useless uh, in, terms of, um, in terms of policy. So that, I think, is a worrisome tendency. Um, I think it's a very negative uh, development. Yeah, no, very much so. And it's, I think that's a, it's a good place to, to finish up today's episode. It's... Uh, yeah, thank you so much for for giving your time and i'm sure all of our listeners will want to engage more with with the text that you're talking about and if you do there are links to each of the the pieces that danny has talked about both her own pieces and those that have influenced her uh, on the website uel.ac.uk slash 
T E or C. And be sure to check those out, and and you'll be able to read more in depth about what she was talking about uh, there. Uh, Danny, thank you so much for uh, for being on today's pod. I'd also like to thank Jamie Murray as always for editing uh, today's podcast. I'd like to thank Maria Dumitrescu who uh, was our researcher for today's episode. Um, and. Be sure to join us next week where I'll be talking to Dr. Joel Busher from Coventry University about his research on the English Defence League and so much more. So until then, uh, chat to you soon. Bye.